We're back. We're back after a little bit of a break because of various reasons. And I think we can delve straight into episode 33. Uh, I'm Ben Marshall and co-hosting is Tom Major. Um, I think actually, I was saying we're delving straight into 33, but I think that actually perhaps maybe we should do a little sort of um, background about ourselves because it's been 33 episodes and I'm willing to bet that we have a lot more listeners from... I don't know if we've ever really given our background to ourselves or not in 34 no. episodes, but we probably should. Yeah, we've kind of remained somewhat enigmatic, I think. <laughs> it's pretty arrogant to refer to yourself as an enigma, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, mate. Do you want to go first? Do you want to do a bit of background? And also, I can talk about my holiday. Yes, because we all, we're all dying to hear about your holiday. I have photos as well. If anyone would like to see them, I'm more than happy to provide. <laughs> Are they in slideshow form? They can be, yeah. And you can sit there on the sofa next to me and I'll really slowly go through them and explain each one in great detail, despite it being remarkably similar to the one prior. Can some of them have star wipes? All of them will be having either star wipes or really loud, jaunty noise uh, effects. Because <laughs> <laughs> otherwise, I know you'll only drift off. And I'm not having that. <laughs> you need sudden random noises during a slideshow to keep your audience awake and alert. <laughs> have you ever seen me give a presentation? <laughs> I'm not sure I have, actually. <laughs> I also am a big fan of like the 4D. You know, like when you go to the cinema of 4D and you get like rain on you and stuff like that. I'm just... <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Stop, throwing... <laughs> Stop throwing snakes into the audience. <laughs> oh, you learned Perfect. that here, didn't you? Yeah, random snakes. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what am I doing? I uh, am out in Thailand doing ecological research regarding king cobras and other various herpetofauna. Um, yeah, what more, what more is there to say? I do a lot of data stuff and very little field stuff, and it's pretty much all snake-related. You're a professional. I am technically a professional. <laughs> I'm, I am writing stuff about king cobras and being employed to do so I don't just do it for fun yeah it's so, nice when the fun is kind of um, incidental yes oh no I'm super lucky in that regard man super lucky yeah well I mean um, as am I I also study snakes um, I study the Escalapian snake I'm a PhD student at Bangor University in North Wales and the Escalapian snake is the only species of snake introduced to the UK by human means. It's not a native species, although it was um, during the climatic optimum, but it's not anymore. And I'm kind of studying the genetic variability of the population that we have in North Wales, along with their spatial ecology, population dynamics, survival, all that kind of stuff, as part of my PhD. And I'm in my first year. Awesome. And it's and it's going well. I'm I'm kind of the opposite of you. You're doing a lot of data stuff, and at the moment, I'm doing a lot of the collecting data stuff. Um, doing purely data stuff. Pure yeah. data, all day, every day. <laughs> it's either <laughs> data or it's ethics uh, <laughs> forms. <laughs> oh mate, yeah, I do a lot of writing things like uh, 
you know, applications or um, licensing stuff, which is, yeah, that's not very fun. But at least I get to see the odd snake, although I have only seen one in the last three weeks because they're super sneaky. Well, yeah. I mean, to be fair, you get a you you get to see your study animal more frequently than I do. So, yeah, I am lucky in that regard. But yeah, so that's a brief and um, long anticipated lowdown of who we actually are and why we feel the need to talk about reptiles. <laughs> yeah, and I'm sure we'll go into more detail when when things come out and things make progress and projects come along, because you would hope. That there's actually some results at the end of the day that is worth, you know, are actually worth discussing. Well, yeah, fingers crossed. I mean, um, at the moment I'm having a lot of fun, but yeah, the hope is that eventually that will translate into some uh, publications and then we can talk about them on the podcast. Yeah, but talking of results, what we do have is other papers that have actually been done and completed and studies with results that we could discuss right now. Oh, I so didn't talk about my I didn't talk about my holiday. Oh, where just did you go on sake, your holiday? Just for the sake of <laughs> just for the sake of completion, uh, really briefly, I went to I went to Tenerife, which is in the Canary Islands, um, oh. which is a popular place for English people to go on holiday, apparently. And um, yeah, it was really nice. Went with Maya's family, stayed in the villa, saw loads of lizards, um, including an endemic gecko in t- the genus Tarantola. Something uh, it was cool, and I also went whale watching. But they wouldn't let me touch the blowhole of the whale, so I was a bit disappointed. You had an opportunity to touch a whale's blowhole. <laughs> no, I didn't. I was refused. Oh, so they didn't they didn't make it available to you? No, I said to him, I was like, look mate, can I just get in the war and see what the blowhole's like? And he said no. <laughs> <laughs> no elaboration, just a straight no. Yeah. 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 But uh. it was cool. I saw um we saw, I should say, there's loads of us. We saw pilot whales and we saw, um, what were they? Spotted dolphins. But apparently, did you know this, Ben? A pilot whale isn't a whale, it's actually a dolphin. I didn't know that. Hmm. They're like a, basically a souped up dolphin. They've just got a big head and they dive down really deep. So the, And they're massive. A, just a fat dolphin. That's that's what you're getting at. Basically just a fat you saw dolphin. Spot, with... Spotted dolphins and you saw fat dolphins. Yeah, the fat dolphins nice. were much, much slower and bigger. But apparently they were just rest. <laughs> they were just resting. I was told not to judge them on their kind of like laziness in that moment because apparently they've been very busy. They've been very busy the whole evening, and I was like, these these stupid fake whales are super lame. And they were like, no, they're tired. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll take your word for it. Because apparently <laughs> yelled whatever and started throwing peanuts at him to wake him up. Right? <laughs> Come on, do what something. Was, no, like joking aside, it was actually you know. An intensely magical experience seeing wild cetaceans, but um, yes. they also had a hydrophone, which they like dropped in the water, and then um, you like hear the noises of the cetaceans, and it's amazing. Like hearing the dolphins clicking and whistling to each other while they zip around was like really really cool. Man, that sounds like a good holiday. It was. I'm it jealous. Was really really nice. Yeah, it was chilling. It was chilling. Because all I've been doing over the past two weeks is learning Bayesian statistics, which are great. Uh, but it ain't a holiday. <laughs> no, that's very true. Well, you're coming back to England, aren't you? So that'll be a little holiday for you. Yeah, sure it will. Of a sort. <laughs> holiday to the visa office. I love it. <laughs> right, anyway, that's enough rambling about nonsense. Shall we crack on? Yes. 
So the first paper is by Wolf, Fleming and Bateman, published in 2018, Impacts of Translocation on a Large Urban Adapted Venomous Snake, published in Wildlife Research. Yeah, so what is this large urban adapted venomous snake they're talking about? It's the Dugite, or the Dugite, or the Dugiti, I don't know, Dugite I think we're going to go with. It's Pseudonaja or Pseudonaha affinis, and uh, this is a big brown Australian snake, it's actually a member of the brown snake squad, and uh, yeah, they're found in South and West Australia, from southwest and west Australia, which is confusing to say, to the Ayer Peninsula in southern Australia. So if you imagine Australia as like, well, Australia, then they occur in a band on the sort of southern coast of the western half. And venomous, as suggested, and a lapid, which is pretty awesome, because in terms of number of studies on a lapids, uh, colubrids and vipers definitely outdo a lapids and the amount of work that's been gone on, that's, I suppose, not really saying much because colubrids have the advantage of having far more species. But the point is, an elapid being studied with translocation. Yeah. So Quite cool. Yeah, it is. And just briefly, translocation, which is the kind of focus of this episode. Did we even say that? We didn't. We just jumped straight in. Translocation. What is it? What's going on there? Yeah, so this episode is about translocation. And translocation is where you take an animal and you move it away from where you found it. Um, You might think, why would you do that? That doesn't seem like a very nice thing to do. You know, maybe it's some kind of sick experiment. (laughs) Yeah, it's some kind of sick, twisted experiment. Maybe you're just vicious human, but you want to upset a creature. But no, often it's done because these are animals which have what they call human snake conflict, you know, human wildlife conflict, where humans perceive them to be dangerous, you know, in some cases they are, and they want them away from their habitations. So a good example would be someone sees a snake in their garden and they don't like it because they've got a pet dog or a child or insert reason. Uh, Maybe they just don't like the way they got looked at by the snake. They looked at them funny. And so they'll phone (laughs) someone up. And they'll come and take the snake and put it somewhere else. Usually some kind of um, vaguely urban, semi-wild area nearby. um, And they'll release a snake there. And um, yeah, that's what we call translocation. And it's been the focus of a lot of studies, uh, especially in recent years, because it is a popular thing to do. But Mm. um, of course, it really only has the interests of the people at heart and not necessarily the animal. Although, you know, it's better than just killing the animal. And, you know... People understandably perceive it to be better to move an animal out of harm's way than it is to just smash it. Well, that's um, the thing, isn't it? It's perceived to be better, but there hasn't really been enough work to prove that it is actually, number one, a valid way of doing it, and number two, at all ethical. It's been done on such a crazy scale. I mean, you're talking about thousands of snakes being translocated every day across the world, right? I don't think that's an exaggeration. I would imagine um, you're probably right, yeah. I think just in, like... Decent-sized Southeast Asian capitals, you're probably hitting those numbers of thousands of snakes a year. Easy. Easy. And if you're doing that, on that scale, without having a good idea of how you're affecting the animal, I mean, this could be, it could be disastrous. Yeah. I think it's important that we preface all of this discussion with the fact that we're not setting out to bash anyone who had, does anything in particular. Um, and, you know... Everyone, I know. I mean, I know a few people who catch snakes and translocate them, um, and those are people who are, you know, without 
exception, snake lovers, and they want the best yeah. of the animal, and they perceive what they're doing to be entirely beneficial. Well, I think um, that's what it is. It's the best course of action in a bad situation, but really, yeah. as we'll probably see, uh, we're a long way from the actual answer. And it's difficult as well, because if you're the person who goes around and says to someone, oh, hey, don't worry about that, you know, dugite in your garden, it's not a big deal, and then someone's pet or even child gets bitten and it's like severely hurt or worse, then uh, that doesn't reflect very well on you, does it? Yeah, it is tough. It is tough. It's a tough balance because yeah. at the end of the day, if you're not translocating them and they're just getting whacked and that's the alternative, just a dead snake, well, then maybe translocation ain't so bad. Mm. But that is a different sort of discussion. Yeah, it is. But it's interesting as well because it gets more complicated because it's certainly in Australia, snakes are protected. So you're not actually allowed to <laughs> kill snakes, yes. but you can pick them up and move them. And apparently, as we might be about to find out, with potentially dire consequences. And that's okay. You can apply for a license and do that. Mm. So, yeah, anyway, the the dugite, this uh, Pseudo-Naha Affinis, uh, they're this widespread, adaptable, quite a big, bulky, elapid snake. And they eat pretty much anything they can cram into their mouths, including their own kind. Um, we love a good cannibal on the show. And like you say, they're highly venomous. And this study took place around Perth, where they're the most commonly encountered snake. Apparently around 90% of backyard snakes are, in fact, dugites. And um, they seem to be extremely abundant in and around human habitation compared to sort of native bushland, uh, ostensibly because of the density of small mammals. Mm, Makes sense. You've got a good prey source, you're going to have snakes go in there. If they can survive the other sort of stuff, all good. But even then, even if you have sort of high mortality and high turnover of snakes, if you've got those resources, you can probably just persist. Just very quick turnover. Well, this is it. Snake you know. species. Yeah, there, you know, there are species which presumably grows fast if they have ample resource. They, uh, they have lots of eggs. And they have no parental care, so they're not obligated to do anything once they've laid the eggs. You know, start from scratch, let's make mm. some more eggs. Um, yeah, but their native range, so their native habitat is kind of arid scrubland or coastal dunes and heathland. But um, they're also tolerant of woodland and farmland. And yeah, as I said earlier, they're quite tolerant of human habitation. So they are a very adaptable snake. But apparently, as this study kind of shows, they actually they do have a limit to their adaptability. Yeah, I think just before we jump into the actual details, I'll give a little bit of background on other studies on translocated lapids, which I only know really of two. One sort of an additional extra one, but I think it's part of one of the studies I'm about to mention. So pretty much we've got one for translocated tiger snakes that showed... They moved way, way more. That was something like uh, 14 snakes with only 8 translocated. So it's a small sample, but still showing a pretty distinct uh, pattern with the translocated ones moving 6 times more. And the only other one I know of of the lapids is a Barvetal 2013, which was on King Cobras, naturally, where they translocated one snake and had a sample size of three snakes, and the translocated one moved crazy distances, even for a king cobra. So that's the sort of little bit of background, and that's why studies like this one coming in and doing another lapid in Australia is so key, because 
when it comes like vipers colubrids there's a little bit more translocation work out there a little bit more detail certainly for vipers with rattlesnakes in the states had a bit more attention elapids not so much which is pretty much no. the rationale of picking this paper is is yeah one of the few yeah and like you say the the general pattern which obviously largely has been found in vipers and colubrids is that when you translocate a snake away from its native range and watch it to see what it does they move further uh, they have a lot more variability in the daily distance they travel so they're behaving mm. in an inconsistent way um, they're more likely to make long unidirectional trips so they'll just go in a straight line seemingly you know that's not natural behavior if you know what you're doing and you know you know where you're going to get resources you don't just go in a straight line um, they also enter habitat which is less suitable uh, they have larger home ranges and they're more likely to die year on year yeah, that's a, that is a sort of general consensus with previous studies, yeah. Yes, yeah. And so moving forward with this one, same sort of deal, looking for the same sort of stuff. And these guys uh, were well, actually attached two lots, didn't they? Attached radio tags as well as GPS tags to these snakes. Yeah, I was um, really excited to see that. Externally, too. Which, yeah, I, has worked with previous previous uh snakes i know that you can occasionally get them uh pulled off with arboreal snakes or fossorial snakes the transmitter will get caught on things and come off and there you go you've lost your snake um can get in the way of shedding and things like this but this being quite a limited uh time study isn't too much of an issue i don't think no it's interesting though because um one of the benefits of this external attachment is, well, I mean, it's essential for GPS because the GPS... I can't... don't think it is. No. No, That's they say... They... Yes, I know they say that, but they also said that this was the first time snakes were tracked with GPS, and I don't think it is. Because I'm pretty sure that they've been done in... Well, Burmese, uh, Burmese pythons, yeah, they have. In Florida, they have. Yeah, there's yeah. that Heart et al. 2015 paper where they implanted, I think, two VHF tags and the GPS tag which is just insane, yeah. the amount of stuff they forced into those pythons. But I'm pretty positive that the GPS tag is implanted in that case. Yeah, you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. No, I'd forgotten that. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I, think um, it's, I think it's the second... Well, mm, pos I think it's definitely the second paper. Hmm. I, I, What's interesting... I mean, I haven't read another GPS one, but I know that there is something going on with rattlesnakes and GPS devices, I believe... Yeah, GPS my rattlesnake. Whether that's occurring or not, I don't know, but yes, yeah. exactly, there was efforts to get that going, wasn't there? Attached to the tail, yeah, I think it's still ongoing. I think the guy who's doing that is still still on it, because uh, he was yeah. crowdfunding for a while. Um, yes, yeah, so... yes, he was. I think the, the trick is, though, you can probably put something weightier and larger externally than you can internally, so this would allow yeah. for the GPS. Yeah, that's true, although their GPS and VHF units were 14 grams, which is... A lot, lot bigger than anything I could think about putting on. Actually, well, it depends what you go on. 14, but... wait, 14 grams combined? Yeah. 14 grams combined. That's pretty total length. Yeah, it is big, isn't it? Um, it wasn't a huge unit. It was long and thin. Um, but yeah, anyway, that's yeah. just details. But um, yeah, we'll talk about the GPS a bit more at the end because they have a really good section. I think, I don't know if that's a feature of the wildlife research paper. 
whether you, you know, they encourage you to use different methods and talk about them. I have a suspicion it is, but the section they have on the um, GPS and how successful it was is really cool. Mm. Yes, that's, yeah. why, that's why I saw another reason why I like this paper. It's doing two different things with what they're working with. They've got the translocation angle and they've got the methodological, like, mm, let's see if this works sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so... Again, like the other studies you've just been discussing, in this study they used 10 snakes uh, and they were comparing the behaviour of resident snakes, so snakes which were left where they were found or or released within 200 metres, so reliably still within their home range. Um, and they were comparing those yes. to translocated snakes, which were snakes that were caught as nuisance animals in people's gardens and moved more than three kilometres, which is most likely outside of their home range, uh, and then released and they compared the movement, you know, of these two groups to see whether or not translocation was having a negative effect on these snakes. Did you have the number of snakes in total, number of translocated and number of resident to hand? Six, six resident, four translocated. Okay. So that's another thing worth mentioning with these sorts of studies. Number one, your sort of sample size is limited by how you're getting the snakes. In their case captured opportunistically and uh, via snake calls and things for problem snakes so you're limited that way also if you're translocating an animal and sticking a transmitter on it probably want to limit the number of ones you're translocating and sticking stuff to in terms of ethics because you you are basic you're you're testing survival in this this situation so you want to absolutely minimize the number of animals that you're putting at risk so one side you have a slightly smaller sample size than you would perhaps would like, but on the bright side you're putting less snakes at risk. The real it's what makes one of the biggest challenges with these sorts of studies is you're towing that line of of getting convincing convincing results or, or, or robust results while not just putting snakes at risk for the sake of it, really. Yeah, well, yeah, I think they're lucky in this instance because um, the snakes were being translocated anyway, so they were just kind of tacking transmitters on. But yeah, like with this methodology, well, they even didn't then, know. yeah, yeah, they didn't know how well it was going to work. Um, and yeah, we'll talk about it a bit more at the end. But um, yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, it is a tough, it's a tough balance to strike between getting enough yeah. data and using the minimum amount of animals that give you the data you need. It is. It is. especially And also, if you're working with GPS, that is a big chunk of money for a GPS unit. £2,000 per unit. $2,000 a unit, Australian dollars. So, I don't know what that is in pounds, but a lot. <laughs> so, a so little bit of detail on what they're doing. Snakes attached, GPS and radio, going out, finding the snakes, having the GPS record locations. You have a whole bunch of locations to make your estimates for movement and stuff like that. Pretty simple. But results, what are we looking at? Um, translocated snakes did use larger areas, right? Than uh, yep. resident ones. Yep, they had uh, larger activity ranges, like significantly larger. Mm. But interestingly, didn't travel greater distances. No, and that's quite telling, isn't it? So the snakes are almost seemingly... You know, it seems like there's a, a sort of sensible distance that a snake will cover, and it will cover that distance. But if you've got it in its home range, it goes around the places it knows, trying out the things it regularly exactly. does. Yeah. Maybe 
you know, spend a bit of time in my burrow, go and have a bask, go and root around my usual haunts where I find food, check the local areas for females or males, whatever it is they might be looking for. Whereas the ones which have been translocated are like, right, I'm going to move a certain amount of distance today. But rather than it being in a sensible, coherent way, they're actually just bowling around. Presumably, they may be looking for new resources like refugia or, you know, food. But because they don't know where things are, they're just going in a straight line. Yeah, I mean, I, I do sort of wonder whether uh, they might have been travelling greater distances if you just sort of um, increase the frequency of uh, GPS fixes or, or radio telemetry mm. fixes. Just because I might true. be making lots of small wiggly movements searching for things. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that is way, way, way more energy and money intensive to get that sort of data on a, it is. On a snake. I, I mean, my opinion on this, though, I mean, that is something they did very badly in this uh, study. And they'll say it themselves. They really could have got more fixes. There was one snake they tracked for 49 days and they only they only actually got a fix on it 15 times. Mm. Um but that was they obviously hope one of the things they were testing. Su- yeah, that's very true. They hope to have more success with the GPS, and because the GPS um, is uploaded via Bluetooth, you have to go find the snake and get the data. So they didn't realize mm. until later on that they weren't getting the high quality, sort of really frequent uh, GPS fixes that they were hoping for, and so they didn't have the opportunity to compensate with the radio telemetry because they could have tracked the snakes down as many times as they liked, but. Um, but they didn't and like you say they were checking and it's just it's not realistic to you know presumably these are scientists with other things on um they can't just go out and track 10 snakes however many times a day especially as they're not necessarily within exactly the same areas owing to the nature of how they caught them through snake calls they're you know they're 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 disparate animals they're not Mm. in one patch of forest where you can keep going and checking them yeah, no, I think that's exactly what, why the GPS stuff had to be tested like this. Is Okay, it's been done on Burmese pythons, but they are a serious, serious exception. Invasive species in a very different landscape and a totally, totally different animal. And really, this study looking with this GPS setup is probably going to be far more representative of a lot more snakes that people want to be studying compared to Burmese pythons in Florida. Yeah. The bigger the snake, the easier it is, really, because you can just jam-pack more stuff into it. Whereas, um, mm. yeah, I mean, even... Smaller the snakes are the tougher. Es- yeah, the Escalapian snakes we've got a whip that I'm working with, um, you know, it's a really small radio transmitter that we'll be able to use because it's not so much the, um, the weight of the snakes. The snakes are quite heavy, but it's the fact that their girth is quite narrow. And if you yes. have a radio you transmitter that's too big... Anything. Yeah, the last thing we want to do is to impede them, either their digestive tract or any kind of reproductive something. So, yeah, mm. you've got to be really careful. You do. But uh, as you were saying, they noticed significant differences in how in the snake's activity. Um, and there was also a difference in survival. So there was a 50% survival rate for non-translocated snakes so those that were allowed to remain resident in their home range half Mm. still died and of the ones that were translocated all four died over the study period and i mean these snakes if you look at the the table in the um in the paper they a lot of these snakes did not live a long time at all. no no way man the longest that any of them were tracked was 49 days which 
Yeah. It's not long. And the shortest was two days. But, I mean, just glancing at the figures, it looks like the average was probably about, I don't know, 10 or 15 days that they were on average surviving, which is really, really not a very long time. No, I think that's what, you know, I brought up small sample size and stuff, but really what you're looking at is a... Okay, it's only X number of snakes, but it's super, super convincing in terms of just how rapidly and thoroughly all of them died. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you just wouldn't expect... That sort of, well, maybe, I don't know. I don't, I, survival rates in snakes is sort of very tough to get good estimates for. I mean, there are studies out there that have done it, but it's difficult. It is difficult. But in this, there's no way you'd expect that sort of, it it's, would be too much of a coincidence that they all suddenly died within a month of uh, being translocated if the translocation is doing something there, surely. Surely. Yeah, for sure. And they all died. I mean, one was... Of the translocated snakes, one was hit by a car and three died because of predators. And um, Yes, a couple of them invasive is, species too. Yeah, well, this is it. Yeah, so um, one was killed by a fox and then one of the residents was killed by a cat, as you say, yeah. invasive species. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's consistent with a snake which isn't necessarily exhibiting normal behaviour because... If they're out and about trying to find places to hide, if they don't know that, you know, previously if they had their little burrow where they knew they could retreat to or, you know, a safe area which they knew to be, you know, have safe warrens. Because from the sounds of this paper, they're spending a lot of time underground. Mm. Um, and if if you don't know a kind of subterranean complex where you can reliably stay safe, you're going to be on the surface a lot more and you're going to get eaten a lot more. And that seems to be what's happened to these snakes. Yeah, or even if you don't know where good sort of prey resources are, you're going to be spending more time foraging, putting you at greater risk. I think um, yeah. one of the best papers for that that I cite constantly is a Bonnet et al. 1999 paper, which part of, part of their findings are basically snakes that move more, greater risk of uh, predation and being killed on roads, basically greater chance of being killed. And it is something that you sort of see again and again, and it links up so perfectly. You're crossing more roads, you're more t- more time out of cover. Just using more energy is going to lower your chances of survival. Yeah, especially for a snake. I mean, it's uh, it's difficult. It's difficult being a snake where you've got to constantly find stuff. <laughs> yeah, man, it really hits it's a home. A lot of effort. It- Especially when you look at the resident snakes, you know, these weren't snakes that had anything done to them. I mean, they had a they had a transmitter tied to them, which is, you know, it may or may not be having an, an effect on their survival. But regardless, um, three of the six of those died. Um, one from a cat, one from a monster lizard, and one from a, a car running it over. Mm. Um, it's just, br- it's brutal out there. It is. And I, I the anthropogenic sort of aspects to a lot of the mortalities does uh, you know leave a bit of taste in your mouth because you've got these snakes in an environment that isn't isn't best suited to them but they're making the best sort of use of it they can got all these already risk big anthropogenic risks for resident snakes a whole bunch of them are being translocated as well and still being killed by sort of human aspects it's oh man it's a yeah but then (laughs) 
then... such a combination of, uh, of of threats out there. Yeah, but then again, on the flip side, we've already said these are really ad- adaptable snakes. Um, they are apparently in quite high densities in urban areas because of the abundance of prey. It could well be that they're just moving towards some kind of live fast, die young strategy. It might um, be. Yes, it might be. You, or, I mean, you certainly hope they're existing in high densities and stuff because if they're not, things are... It's just a matter of time until they're not existing in any density. Yeah, that's the bleak. That's the really bleak outlook. But what's interesting yeah. as well is that, um, you know, survival of juvenile snakes is a huge mystery, right? So, mm. so it's it does beg the question whether or not where where are the mortalities of this species lying? Is it the case that most reach sexual maturity and then only survive for a little while once they start roving to breed or find food or whatever. Um, yeah. It's a bit of a, it's a big gray area in snake ecology. We just don't know. So yeah, it could be that you need a lot more of them... longer term, longer term mark and recapture stuff with a good proportion of the population actually being marked. Yeah, precisely. This That's is exactly... really, really difficult to do. <laughs> it is extremely difficult to do. Yeah. 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 But, you know, we can but try, and we both are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Being limited, both... so you're less limited by detection problems, but they're still there. If Probability there is detection... of detection is so hard to sort of get right and work into things. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Yeah, so I think the long and short of this paper is that the ones which were translocated fared worse, and it's Despite yes. the fact, as you said, you know, you could ask for more sample size, but they've pretty adequately shown, even with the small sample that they've used, um, that there was a negative effect on these snakes when they uh, when they're translocated. Yeah, and you turn around and like, okay, do you want, do you actually want to increase this sample size? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> do you want to just send some more snakes to their death? Not really. No, I'd rather just not. Yeah. Um, Maybe try it somewhere else with a different species, and you know, build build the uh, build the knowledge that way. Mm. That's yeah. that's what I feel uh, would be better. Um, yeah, I mean, there's wanna... enough similar species of. I mean, even among in this genus, there's like more than ten species. I'm pretty sure. So yeah, and I'm, I would imagine there's similar stories going on around Australia where these other species are found. So it'd be interesting to see if the the pattern is consistent. I mean, we've got a lot of Australian listeners who, who are probably way more familiar with this snake than we are. Um, oh yeah. yeah, I'm sure they'd all. I'm sure they'd all be able to tell you, and I'm sure they're all familiar with the translocations that go on of the specific species in the areas where they are. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Should we talk about the GPS? We should definitely talk about the GPS. Yeah, yeah. So there was a whole section, as we said in the uh, in this paper, dedicated to their success with the GPS tracking. Um, on the one hand, it seemed like this method they used, where they poked a needle through the snake and tied a bit of nylon through it, and then onto the GPS and uh, radio telemetry unit, had very little impact on the snakes in terms of wounding. The, the wounds mm. didn't get infected, and they had sort of minor abrasions, but that's it. You know, as you'd expect from something rubbing. Um, but uh, it didn't really work so well in terms of data collection, did it? No, I mean, this is this is one of the reasons I think this paper is so sort of important, is it's something that is just sitting there being like, oh, I wish we could put GPSs on the snakes. The, the tracking effort's so intense to get good data on snakes. It's, it's already difficult work finding them. Wouldn't it be nice to get the best data possible? GPSs, 
you you know I get so jealous looking at people working on birds and big mammals and big aquatic life and stuff and they're getting gorgeous GPS data sets with a GPS point every couple of hours and things oh the manpower you need to get that sort of fidelity of data with radio telemetry is too much <laughs> way too much for a lot of studies so to actually go out and test this and to work out how good it can work with a, a semi-fossorial snake i suppose is semi-fossorial is that is that a fair um, fair statement i would I don't know a lot about them, but from reading this paper, I think, yeah, it seems about fair. Yeah. But to test it on such a species and just see what can you get, what can you get out of it, okay, the attachment method isn't perhaps as good as you want, but if you've got really great data for a few months, that could be really, really powerful. Um, turns out we're still in a bit of a, a bit of a tough situation where it comes to GPS and snakes. Yeah, because it, they... You know, as you say, with with big mammals, you know, especially like cetaceans, they live in the sea. So when they surface, you know, they open that blowhole and they take a suck in some air. Beep sends the GPS. I don't know what you'd call it. You know, the signal goes straight to that satellite, and it's like there it is. Um, whereas with a snake that spends most of its time either underground, you know, crawling along the side of a house under some leafy trees, even leaves are going to get in the way of this. Yeah. Um, and it, it translated to, as I said, seven fixes. In 49 days and it was trying every what was it was it trying two every hours hour? every two hours yeah trying every two hours throughout the day which is when the snakes are active obviously it trying yeah. to ping at night time is probably not very sensible because they are diurnal um but yeah you know that translates to an incredibly high percentage of failed attempts and it would try for yeah. a whole minute every two hours so these snakes just aren't on the surface it's not an effective means of studying them and um if that's the case for a snake like this i see it being a problem also for you know, even arboreal snakes, because snakes which are arboreal, they don't live in, uh, you know, it's a structurally complex environment and there's never nothing above them. It's very rare that you see a, an arboreal snake sitting in direct sun, I would think, yes. because that's the real high top layers of the canopy where you're going to get that kind of a behavior. And I don't think that's going to be often the case. So, yeah, it does. It does draw into question. I mean, I guess the the next logical thing would be to get a GPS that can ping through stuff. I mean, I don't know. I know nothing about the technology or how possible that is, but that seems like a logical next step. If you could fire GPS straight through cement, then you'd probably be laughing. <laughs> I think the trick is that you need a small enough unit for snakes and the power to weight ratio there just isn't, isn't there yet. I think yeah. you're also working with an animal that lives on a totally different scale to a decent-sized mammal or a bird. So any sort of GPS error makes a considerable difference in the amount a snake might move compared to, say, a, a peregrine falcon or something. So yeah. just in terms of that, still probably wanting the radio telemetry to get those closer assured locations. It, yeah, It's difficult. It's so needed to be done. Really needed to see just, okay, <laughs> is this possible? Is this feasible? Is it worth the money? And right now, they're pretty much saying not, right? Yeah, it seems that way. And it was, yeah, even just in terms of cost, it's not even worth giving it a go. Um, unless you've got, you know, unlimited funds, which herpetologists generally don't. <laughs> no, I'm so, yeah, I'm su that's super, super grateful for this study having been done. Yeah. Because it, it just, okay. 
If it's even remotely fossorial, I won't be dealing with it. If it's a <laughs> weird, like, snake that lives in a desert, I don't know, maybe. But uh, I suppose even though, they, you know, they're going to be going under things, aren't they? Because hey, do you know it's it desert work and well. they'll cook otherwise. Mate, do you know what it'd work really well for? Sea snakes. Potentially. Sea snakes that eat pelagic fish. Oh my gosh. Can we do an acrocordus spatial ecology study? They're really fat yes. too. You could put a big GPS device in them. Yeah, mate. I think so. Put a little backpack on them. Well, no, because they'll do the weird shedding thing where they tie themselves in knots and they'll get caught on the GPS and they'll, they'll just oh, yeah. get stuck in a knot forever. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Hey, so um, one of their final statements in this paper is translocation changes the question from if the snake dies to when the snake dies. Yes, I did like that. With uh, It was attributed to someone, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I can't remember who. Uh, um, I've, I've rotated my paper to look at the table. <laughs> uh, uh, Deagle, Deagle and somebody... Oh, here we go. Dodd and Seagal. Oh, so it wasn't whatever I said. Dodd and Seagal. Dodd and Seagal, 1991. Translocating reptile appears to change the question from if it dies to when it dies. Yeah. And then they talk about education and how the best way to deal with the snake conflict in Australia would be to show everyone that snake's cool, let them stroke a snake, give a snake a little squeeze, understand Hmm. that they're actually kind of pretty chill animals unless you upset them but you know yeah. there's a long way to go with that i think so i mean that's a pretty sensible conclusion to come to pretty much wherever you are it, it would be cheaper if people just could live side by side with snakes and you didn't have to translocate them it would kill less snakes if people could just live side by side with them and didn't have to translocate them yeah so yes it may be the best solution in a bad situation but really, moving forward, probably should be trying to work for some towards something else. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> so on the subject of snake translocation, our second paper ties in very neatly and nicely, doesn't it? What is it? Another one about translocation, perhaps? You said it. Damn. So this one is Devon Song, Martelli, Dudgeon, Crow, AIDS and Carica 2016 is long distance translocation and effective mitigation tool for white-lipped pit vipers in South China. And this was published in Biological Conservation. Mm. And I think we both read this when it was freely available on the internet as a master's thesis, didn't we? Because it was um, Devon Song's <laughs> yeah, so... master's thesis. <laughs> yeah. yeah, read it as a master's thesis and then completely neglected to get the paper until way after I should have and well it's good paper yeah it's really really good um so this one's studying we talked you mean you said earlier on that a lot more viperids have been studied in terms of translocation effects and Mm. this is another one to add to that pile um it's cryptelitrops albolabris or as it's called in the title tromerosaurus albolabris um uh, the white-lipped pit viper. Yeah. I think uh, before we dive into exactly what the white-lipped pit viper is, worth saying, we were talk- the previous paper was cool, 
because it's looking at a lapid that is less studied. This is super cool because it's looking in Southeast Asia, which is pretty uh, understudied in terms of translocation stuff. Um, I mentioned the King Cobra stuff. That was done in the Western Ghats. So there is a bit of a gap in terms of translocation studies with a lot done in North America especially. Um, some done in Australia. I can't think of any done in the UK specifically, but I'm pretty sure there are some done in France and mainland Europe. Um, Not that I can bring them to mind. I'm feeling there might be a... There has been translocation studies of adders in the UK, but they're not published yet. Oh, there we go then. Yeah, because it's um, Darren Nash of Kent. Yes. He he did some, but I don't think he's published it yet. Okay, so they're in the works. They're coming. They're coming along. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. But this is, I don't know, to me, this is another cool thing because it's filling another quite desperately needed to be filled gap. Uh, Yeah, as you say. Southeast Asia is a bit of a grey area, and that's why it's so exciting to be working there for you. Like, Oh, boy. Lots of mysteries. A lot of mysteries, but also you have that horrible problem of, don't know what's going on. Sometimes don't even know what species you're looking at. <laughs> Wait two weeks, that's a different species you're looking at. That's the same snake. <laughs> oh, yeah, but different now. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, this species... Uh, Cryptelotops abelaris, as I said earlier. Um, I mean, this is a beautiful snake. Bright green, forest green. Little yellow belly. Um, females are about one metre long. Males about 60 centimetres. Uh, some of the males have a white stripe on the face and along the kind of lateral body. Um, and they have these huge, big, beefy heads. Real archetypal pit viper head and associated hole where the heat pits are. Um elliptical people they just look super mean really cool ambush predators Mm. Um, yeah that being said not too much ecological information on albolaborus despite their sort of wide range where do they range from like uh china all the way down to i don't know how far it goes actually it goes is all the Indonesia, way down to Indonesia, Indonesia in the east, and India and Nepal in the west. Like mm. you know, all those countries—Malaysia, Thailand, Myanmar, Cambodia, Thailand, Laos, Vietnam—it's like really, really, really widespread. Um, and there is a cool paper about their uh, phylogeography as well. Um, really, really detailed paper about their phylogeography. Uh, but I can't remember what it's called. So that's a bit of a non-starter. I'll find it and put it in notes. <laughs> okay, as long as it's in the notes, that's fine. Yeah, but really interestingly, I think that they said despite its wide range, it's like all one species that's quite closely related. Hmm. Um, it's relatively recent radiation from... Uh, I want to say it's from China. Might okay. be wrong. Might get a correction on that. But yeah, I think we talked about it on the podcast many, many moons ago. Oh, we might have... Do like a good Albalabrus uh, conversation. Yeah, me too. They're one of my favourites. Good, very good. Mm. Um, so what's 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 going on here? So Albalabrus in, in this case, exactly. We're in Hong Kong. <laughs> Fantastic 
I've written it in the notes, perfect setup for human-snake conflict, because we're talking about a lot of people in very close proximity to a lot of snakes. Mm, Elbows tend to be relatively uh, flexible, it seems. You know, they are existing where people will exist. And what is also important to remember is green pit vipers are one of the top snakes that are responsible for snake bites. They're not one of the... uh, I don't think they're classified in one of the, in the big five, whatever they they uh, talk about, because the venom tends not to be fatal. But in terms of actual snake bites, they are definitely up there. Certainly in Thailand, green pit vipers as a whole, so there's be multiple species, but Albulabris included, are coming into contact with people frequently and causing harm in some way sometimes. Yeah, because they're green and they're small and they're hard to see. Yes. And our fingers and are warm. And if you're, I don't know, doing some gardening, doing some sort of agricultural activity, farming, something along those lines, and you're going to spook an albalabris or a green pit viper in general and you know come into contact with it, their first line of defense isn't to flee and get out of the way. It's to sit there and pretend they're not there. So, yeah, not. which is great if you're studying them because they're incredibly easy to catch. <laughs> <laughs> Even, you know, they will patiently wait while you climb 10 meters up a tree, billy around, shake the branch. They won't go anywhere. They'll just be like, oh, <laughs> is he coming? Oh, God. <laughs> Don't move. No, it's, not, it's not seen me. <laughs> I love how committed they are to that strategy as well. Yeah, I like it too. Yeah. yeah. And then... Um, a snake hook is frequently met with open curiosity rather than fear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's a very cool silver branch. Um, but yeah, this, I mean, like you say, Hong Kong. I had no idea, but 40% of it is national parks. It sounds absolutely fantastic to go to Hong Kong. Mm. Yeah. We're yes, well, I think, by... I, think the, I think the trick is with Hong Kong is those 40% are national parks. That's all that's left in terms of... Uh, places for things to live <laughs> that aren't urban environments yeah but i mean um, that's still reasonable isn't it like if 40 percent of the uk was national parks we'd be laughing although our national parks are oh yeah that's a, that's a different trick because some of our yeah. exactly that's a different ball game national park by name perhaps not by function <laughs> no that's very true but yeah um what was i gonna say yeah uh yeah there's loads of people there and it's also a subtropical forest so as you said, a melting pot for human snake conflict. Um, mm. And uh, Devon Song and colleagues, the idea was that they would compare the survival movements, reproduction and brumation behaviours. So what these snakes do when it starts to get a little bit chilly between translocated and resident snakes and see whether or not it's having an effect on them. Apparently, these snakes, as you were saying earlier on, are translocated a lot in Hong Kong um, for the reasons you just yeah. described. They're they're pretty common. They are pretty bitey by accident when people are poking them when they don't realise. And yeah, not a lot is known about whether or not this mitigation strategy is actually working or whether it's just serving to move snakes and then you don't have to witness their untimely demise. Yeah, I think one of the things we didn't mention in the previous one is sometimes snakes just go straight back to where they came from. They do. That, that is they a distinct can, possibility. They, they just they just go straight back there, which 
probably is the best situation. They're immediately out of human-snake conflict for the moment, and then can get back to where they know how to live. And yeah. who knows? The cryptic nature of snakes might mean that they never come in contact again. And it was just plus, a one-off deal. Yeah, plus they've learned a pretty harsh lesson, because it would be very frightening for a snake to be caught it, and moved. For sure, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so similarly to the last study, there's two different groups. Uh, translocated over three kilometers, or resident snakes, which are released back where they were found. And um, yeah, this one had no GPS. They were just using old school radio transmitters, tracking the snakes two or three times a week. And they actually tracked 41 snakes, which is exceptional. It's a lot of snakes. Uh, that's a lot of transmitters, too. Yeah. It's a lot of lot of time and a lot of effort. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what did they manage to get? 1,245 locations across 41 snakes. It's really, really good, isn't it? 20 resident, 21 translocated. That's a lot of info. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, should we move on to sort of what they what they found, the differences they found between them and the things that yeah, weren't so I, different? I think so. Methodolo- methodology, pretty simple. Go out, find snake, record where it is. Record yeah. whether it's alive. Okay. Yeah. Um, translocated snakes. In 2013, the resident snakes had a higher probability of survival than translocated snakes. So translocated snakes, 25% survived, whereas resident snakes, 71% survived. Mm. Um, and that's a pretty irrefutable difference. Um, they didn't yeah. do measurements on the first year's worth of data because there wasn't enough and they were tracked for inconsistent amounts of time, but they could compare the second years. And yeah, ones which had been moved died more. Well, and, and raw survival rates from the first year, you know, despite those sort of caveats, showing a pretty similar um, stark difference, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, as we spoke about with the dugites, um, female snakes which were translocated were more likely to travel unidirectionally in long straight lines. Resident snakes never displayed this behaviour um, whereas translocated ones did which is kind of consistent with you know, random travel searching type of behaviour maybe it's a bit, you know, you can't really pick apart exactly what it is the snake's hoping to achieve with that straight line you can just say that the resident ones weren't doing it I think uh, I think you can testify that Seeing finding an albulaborus which moves in one direction, night after night after night, would be pretty spooky and weird. Yeah, I'd spent some time radio telemetering these guys, and um, they have a pretty definite pattern of behaviour which involves mostly just chilling. Um, <laughs> and yeah, even camera trap footage of them, they are pretty easygoing. They like to go sit in one place when they'll go sit. They'll go sit in one place for a while, then they'll go sit back somewhere nearby for a while, and then they'll do the same thing the next day. They're not just bowling around in one direction, um, you know. I wouldn't it, know how. I mean, you're yeah, talking about, like, weeks on end of maybe a couple of metres move from shelter site to non-shelter site, right? Shelter yeah. to ambush, day and night cycle. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. not much more than that. No, no, they are very much, I mean, yeah, it was only a couple of our labourers, um, but yeah, that was definitely the uh, the theme. Um, and I mean, these are female snakes. And if there's one, if there's a gender which you'd expect to be roving around, it's not going to be the females. And um, yeah, the females were just bowling around. And if you look on their big diagram of all the uh, 
snake roots and they're all sort of marked to say whether or not the snake survived. You can see just from that diagram alone that traveling in a long straight line is really, really bad for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about a snake that is entirely geared towards ambush, predation and minimal movement. And yeah. you've got them moving day in, day out. I mean, yeah. forget the predation risk, forget the all the other sort of like road risk, crossing roads and things. They're just not built for that sort of energy expenditure. No. Because if it's moving, it isn't ambushing. Yeah, exactly. And also, if it is moving and it's stopping every night, I mean, you know, for the sake of argument, perhaps these are snakes which are spending some time ambushing uh, or are still resting during the day. Their, their yes, data wasn't I think they high... must be. Yeah, I mean, their data wasn't um, detailed enough to say whether or not that's the case, or maybe we just haven't seen it. But um, in any case, if you're going different places every day, you're not going to be finding the same quality of refugia or place to hang out that's safe as you are if you know an area and you're doing the same thing day in, day out. Because, mm. I mean, obviously, you know... At least from what I've seen, the limited amount that I've seen, they, they're not deciding where to sit by accident. You know, these are places which work for them and obviously meet a set of criteria for that animal. And the likelihood is that if you've moved to a completely new area, you're not going to be able to set up shop somewhere equally good day in, day out. And that probably is part of the reason they're dying. You know, that's just conjecture. But I mean, that would make sense. Yeah, the other sort of uh, aspect to that that's suggested is that you suddenly moved to a new location, you've lost a lot of the cues that you're used to dealing with, sort of chemosensory cues, smell and things like that, which are reminding you, okay, this is a good location for this. I know that this is a route that uh, sort of prey take frequently. You've got also chemosensory cues from fellow albolaborists in the area sort of informing your decisions. Yeah. yeah. Chances are you've lost a lot of information that you are used to having around you. And uh, that might be why the unidirectional moves are happening, because these snakes are looking for something familiar. Yeah, yeah. And then you add into that the fact that, you know, it's probably stressful for these animals to be undergoing Hugely. this experience. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, anyone can attest to the fact that when you're feeling stressed, you don't do things as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, there is a, there is a paper where they actually uh, discussed that um, stress in translocated uh, rat snakes, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Hiken et al. twenty sixteen. Yep, translocated snakes had increases in corticosterone and testosterone. Mm. So there you go. Mm -hmm. Probably stressing them out. That's not good yeah. for you. No, it's not. Bad, bad, bad. I do want to bring up how these a lot of these snakes died. There were a few mysteries, but uh, the vast majority were killed by predators, and uh, one was flattened on a road. Yeah. So, roads rear their ugly head. I also do want to mention that uh, one was eaten by a king cobra. Yeah. That's... So, they turned, they turned <laughs> they... up to track an albolaborus and uh, they were tracking a king. Wait a minute. They actually saw the king? It it says that it was eaten by a king cobra, yeah. Wow. Well, because me and Kurt had that once where we went to track a macrops, so a really quite closely related snake, a uh, big-eyed pit viper, and uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a snake poo. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. 
It took us so long to find it. We were so excited because it had moved. (laughs) (laughs) The biggest move of its life in the belly of another snake. We were like, what's it been doing? Oh my gosh, like, where's it going to be? And then it was in this really weird place, like a little mini orchard. And you were just like, wow, I would not expect to see a pit viper here. And then sure enough, after about 20 minutes of searching like a five meter radius, Kurt saw a big poo on the floor, which may or may not have been a king cobra. It could have been a crate or something else. but Yeah, could have been. Yeah, could have been very sad, but interesting well, at the same time. It's, it, it, I find that less sad than the ones killed by invasive species or killed on the road. Because mm. at the end of the day, that's just a uh, cycle of life, right? Yeah, death. I wouldn't death by car is car's not going to eat it. No, I, I wouldn't mind so scavenging much, but... animal. It was my favorite individual that got eaten. <laughs> <laughs> so you never have favorites, man. I know, she was so cool. She had like a yellow chin. I was like, yeah, you're really cool. And then she got eaten after like a few weeks. <laughs> Damn. Never mind. Um, anyway, back to the um, back to the old uh, Arbalabris. The So we've said they were more likely to die and yep. travel in straight lines. They weren't trying to we go mentioned? home, which is interesting. Yeah, so they weren't trying to go home, but they were more inconsistent in terms of when they decided to brewmate. Yes. Um, so the native resident snakes were just all simultaneously deciding it was time to chill out, cool down, brewmate for a while, hide underground or in some leaf litter. Whereas the translocated snakes weren't. It was almost like they just weren't going down at the same time, maybe because they weren't satisfied with where they're found, whatever it might be, but they were they were less consistent. Hmm. Yeah, so wasn't there some sort of indication that uh, reproductive cycles may have been interrupted or thrown off? Certainly didn't look like they were running their course like they should. No, none of the females which were translocated had follicles which looked viable, whereas some of the ones which weren't translocated did. So yeah, it seemed to interrupt their um, their breeding, which is understandable. Everything else we've discussed... It's not conducive to getting yourself into breeding condition. So yeah, in short, translocated snakes, more likely to die, more likely to go in long straight lines, less likely to reproduce, and also confused about brumation. Yeah, the reproductive one's a little bit sort of uh, wavy because they couldn't sort of consistently do it over multiple years. But that being said, it's not looking good because even the reproductive stuff aside, how many are even going to survive long enough to reproduce with a survival rate of what? 25% 25% did you say? Yeah, not many. Yeah, that's pretty poor. Not many. No. So. Right, should we... Uh, well, I think we've pretty much got to the bottom of that. Translocation's bad for snakes. Translocation doesn't look great for snakes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but in terms of moving forward from that, a whole load of education, I guess. I don't know, it's a tough problem to be solving. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly is. Right, should we move on to episode... What am I talking about? Episode. Uh, Should we move on to everyone's favourite new species podcast segment? Yes. Definitely. Let's do it. (laughs) 
This is why the papers were organized the way they were, because now we've got this beautiful segue from Viper to Viper. We have a new moth-praying alpine pit viper from Qinghai Tibetan Plateau uh, that was published in Amphibia Reptilia by Shi Wang Cheng Fang Ding Huang Ho Liu and Li in 2017. And I think it is a rather stunning looking snake. It's really cool, isn't it? Um, and it actually, we've been wanting to do this as on the podcast for a while, but um, the paper <laughs> was really hard to get. It was hard to get, and we've had it sitting there waiting for, we've got to wait for the right episode. We'll do another yeah. Viper episode, and it, it, we'll save it for that. We'll save it for that. And uh, finally, it's come along. <laughs> yeah. Finally. <laughs> so, um, as you said, this is a new species which is found in the tibetan plateau or on the tibetan plateau which is a pretty crazy crazy place to be finding a snake crazy high altitude man what are we talking 4100 meters yeah so this is potentially the second highest viper slash snake species in the world right after what after how are we pronouncing the genus here are we going with Gloidius? I would think so, yeah. Okay, so Gloidius uh, Himalayans is the highest snake in the world. So, same genus. And this one, which has just been described, is called Gloidius rubromaculatus. Mmm. And it's a cool-looking snake. And that name means... Well, the Latin word rubro, which is red, and maculatus, which means spot... Uh, which is talking about the crossbands of red on the body. Um, and they suggest it should be called yeah. the red-spotted alpine pit viper. Which is pretty on the nose, isn't it? Red-spotted, yeah. high-altitude pit viper. All right. If you see it, you know what to call it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's really awesome, actually. It's quite nice. And they seem like they're a little bit variable. Um, mm. like the, the main photo that they lead with is like a really red one. But then some of the others... Um, are a little bit more sort of grey. I mean, it's a super cool looking snake. And it's crazy that it eats moths. <laughs> of all the things you'd expect a viper to eat, moths are not particularly high on that list. No. What a way to live. Super cold, eating moths, eking out an existence on the Tibetan plateau. Yeah. yeah. But to describe, to describe the way the snake looks, it's a smallish looking viper... Um, not the hugely distinct head that you'd expect from hearing it's a viper. Um, you know, quite smallish scales. Um, and its base color is kind of like a rusty... Well, I mean, it's, I guess the base color is kind of a tanny gray with then rusty red spots. Um, and then in becoming increasingly black towards the back end. But the head pattern's really cool. It almost looks like a king snake the way the head is. Yeah, big, that's what fat I was scales. with the markings and everything. It, it it's it's got a it's got a king snake kind of feel to it, doesn't it? Yeah, I think most pit vipers. Well, I don't think this is a pit. Is this a pit viper or a pit or a viper? Yeah, pit viper. Pit viper. Yeah, so most of them. You'd think, I mean, I would expect small, little, tiny scales on the head, but this has got huge shields on top of the head, um, which make it look Mm. really cool. Yeah. It's got attitude, hasn't it? It looks mean. 
Oh, serious attitude. That's classic Viper, though. Try, yeah. try and find me a Viper that looks boring, with no attitude. I couldn't do boring. I could do it's dopey. <laughs> what, what would be dopey? Apart from, like, a juvenile Gaboon Viper. Even an adult Gaboon Viper, they look so silly. No. A Gaboon Viper looks like it's, like, asking the third person for directions and is super embarrassed. <laughs> oh... Um, yes, but, I suppose because they got the chubby cheeks. Yeah, and their Those eyes always chubby snake looking, cheeks. Always looking up. Um, yeah, <laughs> avoiding eye contact. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They do say that some of the snake. You know, they're not one hundred percent sure the, the snakes actually ate the moths, but they had moth debris in the feces. Um, and they had one regurgitate a whole moth. Yeah. Which is unusual yeah. if it was eaten by a prey item and then they ate the prey item. Yeah. And then they had sense. them. Yeah, exactly. And then they had them in captivity and fed them a moth and they ate them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they love moths. They only the eat jury's, moths. The jury's still out on the moth thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this captive one in the box and they fed it a moth. They love it. Yeah. Can't get enough. Yeah, mad. <laughs> uh, mad that they eat moths. I can't believe it. Mm-hmm. How big are the? How big? We haven't said how big they are. There's, we had a what was the holotype? Four hundred and seventy-three millimeters SVL. So they're so, little, not monstrous. But then that's again classic viper, really. Yeah, and and high altitude as well. You'd be surprised if it's yeah, a big yeah, beast. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the CT scans are pretty awesome, aren't they? Of the skull morphology. Oh, man. Those fangs look so cool. Like, you can see the one big fang, and then the fangs which are waiting to replace the old, the the yeah. fang coming in behind. Oh, it looks so cool! Really, really awesome. Awesome photos. Awesome imagery. Also, they did the phylogenetic stuff to back all this up. They did. Yep. Pretty thorough. Yeah. 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 Uh, mention the conservation aspects of it, because usually we have. Hey, look, new species found in this place. Really restricted range. Uh, also, the forest is on fire and there's people chopping <laughs> it down. Yeah. It's also a nuclear test fi- site. What's going yeah. on? The snakes are doomed. There's, there's 50,000 people who've dedicated their lives to smashing this animal. <laughs> <laughs> Specifically this one. They hate it. They see its little eyes and it just needs to be destroyed. Yeah. But no, this time, this time we have a, a better situation. Much better, in fact. Um, basically, the sort of cultural values and cultural attitudes of this area, uh, snakes are well respected, and the, the chances are animals, just in general, are better protected than they would be in other locations. So perhaps, perhaps you don't really have to worry about this guy until a whole bunch of like crazy collectors come in and steal them all. But for mm. now. And even then, even then, I mean, they're going to be hard pressed to get them all. It sounds like a pretty uh, remote place with quite, yeah. um, and I mean, it's not an easy place to get to either, Tibetan Plateau. I mean, I tried to go to Tibet and it was too much of a ball ache. We gave up the idea and just didn't. <laughs> it's tough, man. It's tough. So maybe, maybe we're looking at a good situation here. A nice, safe, new snake species. Hopefully there are plenty of moths to eat and uh, they're not getting translocated all over the place. Yeah, that's the hope. Right on. So, um, 
That's our species of the bye week. Gloidius rubromaculatus. Hmm. Welcome to science, I guess. Yeah. Um, interesting hemipene as well. Looks like a... I don't know. I can't... There's nothing I can say. That's just horrible. I Yep. I, I knew you were going to bring that up. And <laughs> that's almost exactly what I was expecting you to say as well. It looks like someone's <laughs> dropped their ice cream. Yep. Not good. Um, yeah. And any, I mean, have you got any other business for this week's episode? If, I've got a little bit. If I had any other business, it is on a different laptop that is in a, not in a state for me to get a hold of it. Um, well, in that case, I'll do with yeah. another business. Yeah, please, um, take up the slack. So the first thing I wanted to mention was that I saw this cool paper by uh, Tuluk et al., published in Nature, Ecology and Evolution, a perspective paper which is entitled A Decision Tree for Assessing the Risks and Benefits of Publishing Biodiversity Data. Um, oh. And this is, it's cool. It's something we talked about a lot. We used to talk about Constantly. it a lot more. Yeah. Um, but we, I think we realised we were kind of just Rehashing the same a dead point. horse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But this idea that you're not necessarily in, it's not in the best interests of the animal for you to publish where it is that you found it especially if it's a new species or an animal which is you know imperiled in terms of conservation and um the whole point of this paper is there's obviously going to be a trade-off between publishing that data and then allowing people who are relevant to see the information and conserve the species work towards helping it but then also you know you've got people who want to go and collect it for whatever reason um on the flip side of that and so they've come up with, you know, it's a nice paper, um, some good discussion, lots of um, like potential case studies. And um, then there's actually a flow diagram of like yes, no answers. And you'll eventually lead to a conclusion where you either do or don't release the data about where you found the animal. So it's a really cool little paper. Um, I'll put a link mm. to it in the uh, in the description. That's good to have some sort of uh, going through in a systematic way and trying to construct, I guess, guidelines, but really spending the time to work out those risks and benefits, right? That's that's good work. That's exactly. needed to be done. Um, and then moving on from that, um, what else have we got here? Oh, yeah, so we got some new Patreons. Yes. Uh, so we have to give a shout out and thank you to Ryan Vance, uh, Brandon Barassa, who I believe is um, part of the, what was it called? Croc Day? Crocfest. Crocfest. Um, the Crocfest, awesome. which we'll continue awesome. to promote on our podcast because it sounds absolutely excellent. Uh, and I just want to find out whether they find those crocs they're going looking for. That's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah, that's going to be really cool. If they can rediscover them, that'd be awesome. Yeah, um, that's what I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for a, a Monga Bay headline that is... Yeah. Yeah, man. That's going to be wicked. Um, also, Owen Davies, or Dr. Owen Davies, to give him his proper title. Thank you very much. Uh, someone who goes by the name of Toadheart, a little bit mysterious, a true enigma. Um, yeah, but tr- and... truly their heart's in the right place. Exactly. Well, that goes without a doubt. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, um, and tweets a lot of toad-related content, which you know I'm, I'm, I'm big into. Uh, <laughs> Who can complain, mate? Who I've doesn't finding... like toad content? So I'm talking about toads. I've been finding loads of toads today. I saw seven Good. toads. 
Seven? Mm, yeah. Whoa, how big were they? Uh, thumb, thumb size. Oh, End of tiny. thumb. Thumb Thumb after the very last articulation. Miniature so, toads. Common, this year's. Common toads? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not okay. jack toads. I wonder um, if your Escalapians eat them. Well, aren't they poisonous? I mean, they are, but that doesn't stop for a lot of snakes from eating them. Interesting, I wonder. And it's I not like Escalapians have not evolved in, spaces, in places where toads exist. Maybe I'll put two in a box together and execute a Thunderdome. <laughs> 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 Just kidding. I'm not going to do that. Um, so, and also, of course, big thanks as well. Final new Patreon, uh, Robert and Linda Alamshah. Um, hmm. So thank you very much. Massive thank you to everybody. We are now self-sufficient, self-sustaining, like a yeah. like a like a sun in whatever phase it is where suns are self-sustaining. Mm, yeah, we're like a perpetual motion machine. We can't be stopped. Can't be stopped. Although <laughs> hardware failures in internet outages have come pretty close today. <laughs> yeah, and holidays. But I mean. Everyone has to have a holiday, I guess. Um, that wasn't a stop, that was a pause. It's different. Yeah, that's true, that's true. Uh, and anyway, so um, corrections-wise, we had a correction from uh, our man Mark Schertz. Um, God, so, it, oh my gosh, it's too long ago. What was even last episode on? My brain. It was on, <clears throat> I don't know, but we had a toad as the new species. Oh, it was the frog colour stuff, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah, frog. of course it was. That was awesome. Mm. So do you remember when I was saying that megaphorus means something and you were like, I don't know if you're right about that. Um, I was saying it meant big, big toad. Uh, <laughs> big big toad. <laughs> big toad, big problem. Uh, uh, as it turns out, that's nonsense as it so often is when I say stuff. And it actually means big eyebrow because they've got those hilarious pointy eyebrows. Those The new megaphorus. Uh, oh, fair species. enough. That, yeah, I mean, yeah. you got half of it, right? I did. I got the big bit right, which is the most important bit. But um, apparently, Ophrys is Greek, ancient Greek, I should say, for eyebrow. And that was uh, courtesy of Mark Schertz. And I'd be remiss to mention Mark Schertz's name and not talk about their podcast, Squarmates, which um, Do it. is going from strength to strength. Like episode two. Oh boy, loved it. Um, so yeah, keep it up. Really enjoyed. Um, they're not our rivals, they're not our enemies, they're our, they're our friends. Um, so yeah, check them out, Squarmates Podcast. They actually are doing a brilliant job, and it's great. I have something to job. listen to. I go out, go out for a little jog, listen to stuff about reptiles, and I didn't have to say it, so it's great. Um, and they're Never all enough extremely... reptiles in your life. Never. No, exactly. I mean, or I amphibian. live with a load of snakes. I study snakes, and then I go out for a little run, listen to snakes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's getting a bit too much. Um, but no, yeah. So th- check them out, and. Uh, Oh, yeah, so we got an email um, from somebody who goes by the name of Jenna, and she was telling us all about, um, she's a high school student, and she has pretty much just gone on a one-person crusade to try and stop um, live animals, or not live animals, but animals being used as part of um, dissection in high schools, because apparently it's like you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of animals are being used for this purpose. And I mean, <clears throat> I didn't know this because I was talking to Maya about it because Maya's a teacher. And she was like, oh, yeah, in the, in the UK, we just use, like, offal from... Animals, yeah, that's what, we, that's the only stuff I've ever done. I, I, yeah. I've never done a 
even dead animal. I've done like kidneys no. and yeah, that's it. W- yeah, we had like a beef heart. Um, I think an eye from some oh, animal. Oh yeah, yeah, you know. a heart I've done actually. That's yeah. true. Yeah, but apparently in the UK we use offal, whereas in the States it's still common practice to use whole dead animals. Um, some of which are like kittens, like baby kittens. Um, baby kittens. From baby kittens, like, you know, but like fetal kittens, I should say. Um, oh, baby which kittens, like, yeah. I mean, you know, as you know, I'm no fan of cats, but it sounds like a pretty dubious practice. Um, but then also <laughs> apparently loads of toads as well, or frogs, um, which were captured in the wild in Mexico and then, you know, taken across. Well, so, that's just um, criminal. Yeah, I mean, that is like, that's just not on. The only good um, toad's a live toad. Yeah. That's yeah. what I say. Well, Often, yeah. those invasive ones, they need to go home. <laughs> they need to just go home. Go home, toad. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, so Jenna actually applied for and was awarded this um, Humane Student of the Year for 2016 by Animalearn. She won a grant for a thousand pound, for a thousand dollars, I should say, to buy virtual software. And um, yeah, she actually managed to convince her school to bring in a humane option where you use kind of like uh, computer software, which has been shown in a scientific study to be as good as the real thing in terms of the learning benefits. Um, So yeah, I mean, it sounds like a no-brainer. You know, use either virtual software or awful, like don't go and catch some frogs and then make children cut them to pieces. I mean, when you put it like that, it sounds kind of weird. So yeah, well done, Jenny. Yeah, um, I think that's the thing is like, maybe like not chopping up live animals is good. But also maybe show people toads and show how awesome they are while they're alive. Because yeah. <laughs> that's I mean... really the kicker is uh, like the whole virtual stuff is fine as long as people are seeing things for real as well. Just yeah. not oh. chopping them up. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, I'm doing some dissections at the moment when we find a snake that's been hit by a car. We'll have a look, see what's going on. And it's fascinating, right? And like, I learn a lot. And I think that would be a good thing for children to have the opportunity to do. But if you can do it on a computer program, or if you can go and see it in a setting which is scientific and it's being done for a purpose, that's great. But yeah, catching live frogs who are dying for this purpose, potentially at the cost of their nat- like natural populations, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it seems a bit weird. I'm, yeah. I'm just glad I have not been in contact with any of that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, big up Jenna. And... What else? I don't. I think that's it. I think that's it for uh, any other business this week. I would say oh. if if I do have some, I don't know what it is. It's, it's. I I think you covering patrons and Jenna stuff. I think that's everything that I had earmarked. Okay, cool. Well, yes. Yeah, oh, so, there was um, a thing about a king cobra eating a eating a eating a monitor lizard. Oh, that video. Yeah, that was crazy. There was a, there was a cool video of that. Um, what have I got to say about that? Uh. Cool video. Awesome. Yeah, so the King Cobra video was sent to us by Owen. Um, and he also sent us a photo of a melanistic yellow-bellied sea snake, which is cool. Oh, yeah, um, that was cool. Yeah, so Owen Morgan, thanks for that. Um, Give you a shout. The King Cobra stuff, I was going to mention briefly that do not worry. There is a King Cobra episode in the works. Um, it might even have dietary stuff on it. But um, we are beholden to reviewers and the slowly turning wheel of the publication journal machine. Um, So sit tight. We're getting there. Just give it the length of time to do 
I don't know, whoever these reviewers are. (laughs) Chase them up. All right. That's that's it. That's it, man. I think we're there, aren't we? Yeah, we're good. Um, Thank you very much for listening. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can. You can email us, herphighlights at gmail.com. We love getting emails and we respond to all of them in the fullness of time. Um, Facebook.com slash herphighlights. Twitter at herphighlights. And if you want to donate to our Patreon, you can find the link on our Twitter. And we also sell t-shirts. Um, search for herp highlight herpetological highlights on Redbubble. Yes, get a get a toad sticker. We've sold a few T-shirts recently and a few stickers. If you have, if you are the owners of these items, please like take a selfie or show us where it's stuck. I'm curious to know, and uh, it'd be really cool to see that. Um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> awesome. Yes. We will be back in two weeks' time. The hiatus is over. We're back on track. Yeah. 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 It's happening. And I uh, don't know what the next episode's on, but it's going to be something. It's a news niche. Oh, is it? Oh, lovely. It's okay. a news, like niche. news Yeah. News niche. You love everything about news niche. I do. Cool. Well, let's sign off because I've got to edit this and we've already been rambling for an hour and a half. <laughs> yes. All right. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. 